Our first reading tonight is from Psalm 118. We'll be reading verses 22 through to the end. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my gods, and I will give thanks. You are my gods, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Right, so the second reading um, is from Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully, um, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you both very much for reading. Please keep that passage open and uh, let's pray as we begin. 
Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Politics is a dangerous game. And in some parts of the world, it is particularly dangerous. Uh, I remember talking to an East African friend who had actually been in several uh, government cabinets. Uh, He'd been a cabinet minister during the 1980s, and he is a very honorable man. And I remember him uh, telling us that he had instructed all his children to steer clear of politics. It's just too dangerous, and he'd seen too many friends come to very bad ends indeed. And of course, we we need good people in politics, like we need good people in every sphere of life. But nobody should go into it uh, with any naivety about what it's like. But what we find here is something fascinating. Jesus, having spent months, if not years, telling everybody around him to keep things quiet, now seems to launch his campaign. After years of silence, he is now going public big time. And it is a dangerous game that he's playing. And his campaign message, for those with ears to hear, was obvious. And that is why he proved so divisive, as we'll see. And the shock is that this division that we see represented in Luke 19, in our passage, actually may well be represented in this building tonight. And that is something that we need to face and confront So let us think about what effect this public campaign that Jesus has uh, leads to, this division in society. And the first group is pretty obvious, really. Um, They're those who are cheering him on as he comes into the city. I've called them the faithful people who adore God's king, because his campaign is about his kingship. Now, That in itself is no surprise. Any politician worth his salt, any politician who's going to get anywhere, has the sort of party faithful around them. They are the basis on which to build your campaign. And Jesus has his fair share of grassroots support. He's got people on his team. And you just have a look at verses 36 and uh, 37, and they're out there in force. With the banners, the badges, the, the, the brochures, all the rest, they are there on his team. We can see this. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. They recognize who Jesus is, and they give glory where it is deserved. But the question is, why? Why do they think Jesus is the king? How do they recognize him? What is it about him that gives them this confidence? Why are they willing to be part of the party faithful, if you like? Well, they have clearly grasped something about him. They see that this this northerner, this guy who's a, a carpenter's assistant, basically, from the north, who hasn't been educated like everybody else in Jerusalem, this guy is God's legitimate king. They've somehow worked that out. Well, how? How have they worked it out? Well, 
actually Jesus has been giving them clues all the way along. And actually in our passage tonight, he's doing that in spades. So look back to verse 28. And you have this bizarre sort of scenario, don't you? He's approaching Jerusalem. Now that in Luke's gospel is significant. Ever since chapter 9, Jesus has been on his way. In chapter 9, verse 51, we find that Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem in that time was basically a hotbed of opposition to him. You see this again and again in Luke's gospel. Again and again, you find that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to give him a hard time. So basically, by resolutely setting out for Jerusalem, Jesus is aiming straight for the lion's den. He's going there on purpose. And so now he's finally here. Does he come quietly, knowing what danger he's in? Not at all. He goes actually for maximum impact, And that explains all the weird comings and goings in the villages outside, all this weird stuff with donkeys and stuff. Uh, You know, verse 30, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ridden, and tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say the Lord needs it. And of course, lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. Now, Jesus is making a deliberate statement In a sense, I don't think there's anything sort of spooky or supernatural about this. Uh, He's planned it. He's set it all up. I'm sure he said that this is what was, uh, you know, he'd asked people in in the place to, to, to organize this. It was ready. But actually, he's doing something far more than just simply organizing the event. He's doing something deliberate from the scriptures. It's an Old Testament statement that he's making. And in fact, this whole chapter is drenched in Old Testament references. You cannot understand what Jesus is doing in these days around uh, the the run-up to the crucifixion. You cannot get a grasp on it at all without the Old Testament. So let let me just go through one or two ways in which we can see this. So here is the first one. This is from uh, Genesis 49. Uh, And the patriarch Jacob is dying. And God gives him prophetic words for each of the 12 sons. And here's the word for Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Now, it's all quite mysterious and and, and weird and You know, this is centuries ago. This really is ancient history, even by Jesus' standards. I mean, it was ancient history for him. It's all very odd. I mean, you know, apart from anything else, uh, kings with scepters, and, you know, that's what a scepter is. It's a symbol of royal rule. Kings with scepters and donkeys are not an obvious combo. But they were for Jacob. Now, if that seems a little tenuous, then get a load of this one from Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. 
See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that's interesting. Rejoice, Jerusalem, so it's in the right place. Why? Because your king has come. And he's coming in a pretty unorthodox manner. I mean, yes, it's a, it's a grand entrance in the sense of drawing attention to himself, but it's not sort of grandiose. He's just on a donkey. Now, you can't get clearer than that in terms of what Jesus is deliberately trying to do. Now, Luke isn't explicit, but it's clear. Jesus is placarding to this hotbed of opposition, the king is here. Welcome your king. No wonder Jesus is very happy to receive the crowd's adulation. He's the king. It is right and proper. He doesn't rebuke them. He he encourages it. And the party faithful get it because of what they've grasped. They've seen that he is the king. And and so he deserves it. And that is why they respond with Old Testament references themselves. They're pretty clued up. Perhaps they've been teed up. Maybe they've been rehearsing. I don't know. We don't know. But but they, they, they sing from a coronation psalm, no less. There were a bunch of psalms in the, the, the Old Testament that were used particularly at kings' coronations. Or they did, actually, Old Testament kings, they didn't have coronations strictly because they didn't have a crown. They were anointed with oil. But they're called the coronation psalms because they're associated when a new king comes onto the throne. And so Psalm 118, which was our first reading, gives precisely that uh, impact. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of David. David was the great king. And every king who succeeded him on the throne in Jerusalem, they would have sung this. So how appropriate that as Jesus comes on his donkey into the city of Jerusalem, making this public demonstration, this public statement of who he is. So the implication is obvious. Here at last is the descendant of David taking his throne. This king is triumphant, not by military force, but by people power. Or at least, I guess that's what many of the people thought. However, the support amongst the crowds seems, well, at best short-lived. Soon, when others were baying for his blood, in a matter of days, they disappeared. Now, there are one or two old hymns that seem to make out that it's the same people who one day were praising him and the next day are baying for his blood. I don't think that can be right at all. But certainly they made themselves scarce when the heat got turned up, didn't they? And I guess I would have done too. Because I didn't fully understand what was going on and what was at stake. But the thing is, you see, Jesus is not coming to his throne with people power. 
but Jesus' power. He is the one orchestrating everyone, everything. He is the one who is engineering events to make the point clear, an Old Testament point. He's saying, what you read there is happening here, now, in me. He is the king, but he's not necessarily the king you expected nor even wanted. But imagine you are Jesus' campaign manager and you've been on the road for a while, but now this is the climax, this is the big point where at last it's all going public. You've been preparing for this moment for, for months. You know, you've got your, your talking points for the media, you've got all the sort of publicity shots ready and, and you're, you know where to go and everything's completely planned and sorted. What should Jesus' next move be now? I mean, his head is now well and truly above the parapet. He's not skulking away. He is making his point clear. He's exploited the element of surprise in what was Jerusalem's busiest week of the year. I mean, what a, what a, what a time to, to appear. No, that's it's perfect. So now, surely, the obvious thing to do is to lead a people power crowd right into the city center, tear down the Roman garrison, a coup d'etat. Risky, but it would definitely show leadership, wouldn't it? That's the kind of leader we need. That's the kind of leader the people want. That's the kind of leader you need to be, Jesus. But no. As you see, if you read on, and I think this will be for a future series, you're going to have to come back who knows when to find out what happens next, or read it yourself. I mean, you know, you can do that probably. Um, oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, I think you can. But basically, what you find in the next few days as Jesus has arrived in his rightful royal capital is he just sort of comes and goes a bit. I mean, basically, the element of surprise is completely lost. You know, he, he comes and goes, does a bit of teaching, a bit of arguing, goes back, comes in. I mean, basically, these are the, this is the behavior of, of a tourist, not a revolutionary. Has he botched the perfect revolutionary opportunity? What is he doing? Well, it won't surprise you to hear that it's completely intentional. He knows exactly what he's doing. Because actually what happens is that his actions expose the reality of what he's up against. Yes, the party faithful, they're for him all the way, theoretically. But there is a crowd who most definitely is not. And here we see the second point, the second group. Religious people fear God's king. They fear him, which seems nuts, doesn't it? I mean, why, why would you fear him? If he's the king, if he's sent from heaven, if he is God's, why, why would you not want him? Well, again, that'll have to be the focus of a future series from Luke's gospel. But basically, Jesus makes a beeline. He goes straight to the temple and then goes in and out again and, and, and so on. But why would he do that? Well, unsurprisingly, yet again, it's got something to do with the Old Testament. And uh, this time, actually, the book really clearly in Jesus' mind is Malachi. 
uh, the last book in the modern arrangement of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Uh, and basically in Malachi, we find this verse in chapter 3 of Malachi, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Now, it's not as explicit in Luke. Mark makes it very, very clear. In Mark's gospel, we know exactly what is going on here because these are the very words he introduces his gospel with. And he's talking about John the Baptist. John will prepare the way for the Lord, as in God. And the next thing you see is Jesus. So as far as Mark is concerned, and in fact, as Luke is concerned, the Lord is Jesus. He is God among us. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for God coming. And what does he do? Well, there's a bit of a gap between when Jesus first appears and gets baptized by John, the beginning of his public ministry, and this point, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he goes straight to the temple in fulfillment of what Malachi said would happen. And why does he go to the temple? To worship? No. This is how Malachi goes on in the very next verse. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like the refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. It's not so comfortable now, is it? But this is what he's come to do. John the Baptist prepared for him. He's the messenger in the wilderness. Jesus has come. He is the Lord, and he comes. And what does he do? He is a refiner's fire. He's burning off the dross to keep the gold. I mean, nobody enjoys it when external assessors or troubleshooters get wheeled in. I mean, I guess there are a few teachers in here. You know, if you've experienced an Ofsted, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Nobody likes Ofsted people. I'm sure they're lovely and they they have pets and things. But but actually, you know, when they come, uh, it's all a bit of a nightmare. Nobody can relax. It's not fun at all. And, and, And this is because they have authority, an authority even over, higher than the head teacher, to come in and look around and investigate and see what they need to see. An authority over the teachers, over the governors. And sometimes their verdicts can be brutal. They're a threat. Nobody likes an Ofsted person. If there are any Ofsted people here, please do. I apologize. Um, It's not personal um, because I probably don't know you're an Ofsted person. No, it really isn't personal. Anyway, (laughs) but I think this is the kind of thing that's going on here with Jesus. This is the kind of objection that they have. Uh, You see, yes, okay, so the Pharisees in in verse 39, they, they, they rebuke Jesus, and they want him to rebuke his disciples, and basically it's because the presenting issue is this adulation, you know, this sort of praise that is on the verge of worship, if not going over. And and so they want them to be rebuked, to be silenced. But that's just the presenting issue. Jesus knows that deep down it's much bigger than that. It's because he represents 
a threat to them, even though they're running the place that is meant to be about God, which is a bit of a shocker. Jesus says, I tell you, verse 40, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out because this is much bigger than them. This is much bigger than now and here. This is about the universe, the whole of creation. Even the stones will cry out because God, the creator, is here. Now, these Pharisees, they could easily justify the rebuke, no doubt. Because they realize that the crowd actually is hailing Jesus as not simply heaven-sent, but as heaven's Lord. That's blasphemy. Punishable by death. Unless it's true. In which case, it's absolutely not blasphemy. It is faithfulness. You don't give to created things what exclusively belongs to God. I mean, that is the nature, that is the definition of blasphemy. Giving to created things what belongs to the creator. Like praise and honor and adoration. But Jesus is no creature. He's the creator himself. God in Christ gets his feet muddy in the river Jordan. He gets his feet muddy on the roads into Jerusalem. He is the creator among his creatures. So what the crowds are doing is the least of what they should be doing. But when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, you see, he demonstrates something that profoundly shows the care and love, not of a visitor, but of a proprietor. Look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. He wept. He's not enjoying this. He's not rubbing their nose in it because he enjoys that kind of thing. Not far from it. He breaks his heart. Why? What's the problem? You know, is this a kind of, you know, celebrity angst of not being liked by the city's inhabitants? You know, not getting enough likes on Instagram or whatever it is. No, don't be ridiculous. It's because they've lost sight of the entire point. And the point is one word. Peace. Peace. See what Jesus says? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. If only you'd known. It's so poignant. It's so agonizing. At stake is peace with God. And peace in the world. You remember what the the supporters of Jesus cry out on the road earlier? Verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's what this means. This king coming into his Jerusalem capital is bringing peace in heaven. 
And yet these Pharisees want Jesus to shut the, uh, the disciples up, rebuke them. If only they'd known what would bring them peace. It's a tragedy, isn't it? And it seems too late for them now. Why? Well, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There it is again. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never claims to be God. He doesn't use those exact words, of course. But if that's not what this means, I don't know what it means. It's absolutely clear. Taking words from Malachi, from Isaiah, and here uh, in his speech to the people around. And you don't recognize the time of God's coming. You don't recognize how to have peace with God. But this is nothing less than the judgment that Malachi had predicted when God comes to his temple. Now, the timings are stretched out, for sure. In terms of Jesus' lifetime and ministry, I don't know what we're talking, sort of three years maybe, thereabouts. No one knows exactly uh, for the length of time of his public ministry between when he arrives and and then comes to his temple, and then for the judgment on the temple to work out, that's going to take probably, well, another 40 years or so, because we know from history that in AD 70, the Roman Empire would trash and destroy Jerusalem and its temple. And the temple would never again be rebuilt. Jesus is clearly having that event in mind And actually, incidentally, that is why modern Judaism is actually descended from Pharisaism and not the other elements of Judaism in Jesus' day. The Sadducees basically had no temple after it was destroyed, so they, they couldn't carry on. Whereas Pharisaism was all about restoring the kingdom. Why? How? By keeping the law well enough. So they're always waiting for the time when the Messiah will come, after they've kept the law um, faithfully enough. Malachi's ancient question was very pertinent, wasn't it? Who can endure the day of his coming, says the Lord? Who indeed? But what difference does that make to us? I mean, the, the temple hasn't been rebuilt in 2,000 years. I mean, some people, you know, people have always been talking about a time when they're going to rebuild it, but I very much doubt it will ever happen. It certainly hasn't happened now. But here is the grim irony. Even though the temple doesn't exist, the problems that caused its downfall do exist still, even in the church. People refuse to come to the only one who can bring us peace in heaven. They go anywhere, everywhere except him. 
They think they can find it elsewhere. They think they can find it within the structures of the religious paraphernalia and systems and activities that they have created, which is doomed from the start. I want to uh, come to a close with, with a poem which was written nearly a century ago now by an American author called Arthur Gitterman. And uh, I think it's more relevant than ever. Um, Some of you may know it. It's literally called First Dentistry Was Painless. First dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, and carriages were horseless, and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting green was weedless, the college boy hatless, the proper diet fatless. Now motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religion godless. How's that even possible? I mean, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Religion without God. Well, I know that there are some sort of religious systems like Buddhism that actually are atheistic, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a religion that actually talks a lot about God and doing things in his name and for him, and yet actually on a day-to-day basis functions as godless. What caused Jesus to weep over Jerusalem, I suspect still causes him to weep in our part of the world, in the 21st century. It is possible to erect an entire religious system as a way of keeping God out. And so he's a threat. And people who stand for him are a threat. And when God actually turns up, they resist and reject him with everything they've got. And I think you can even find this in Bible-believing evangelical churches. It's not just the liberals out there. It can happen to us. We go through the motions. We do all the things. You have a full program. You know, you can have your diary filled with all kinds of different activities. And you're doing it to kid yourself into thinking that actually you're doing God a favor and that you're fine. Instead of just coming to him on our knees, broken, because we know we've just got nowhere else to go that we really are lost and helpless without him. That takes guts and humility together. Don't often think of that as a combination, do we? Guts and humility. But that's exactly what it takes to follow Christ. To resist that actually he is the only means of peace in heaven. And in fact, that's what we're going to be doing in just a moment around this table. That's why we do this. This is the remembrance of how that peace was won. What it took 
to bring it. You see, he set resolutely out for Jerusalem. Back in Luke 9, he's going to Jerusalem, even though he knows that's where all the opposition originates. But he walks straight into the middle, knowing what will happen to him, knowing what he must do to bring peace. And the faithful adore him for it. The religious fear him for it. So as we meet sort of virtually, as it were, around the table, let us just be very clear which group we're in and why we're doing this. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just an activity to while away the time is to say humbly before God, I owe everything to you. The peace I have, I owe to you. I couldn't do it on my own. Let us let him have his way with us as we adore him. Let's pray. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you, our king, our Lord, the one who came humbly on a donkey to your rightful capital and throne. The king who was indeed anointed, and even crowned on a cross. Thank you, Lord, for the peace that this brings now and for eternity. May we live as people of that kingdom peace. In Jesus' name, amen.